those of you who are staying with us, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be looking at chapters 9 and 10 this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 9 and chapter 10. You know, as I look at um, and I examine my own life, one of the things I have to acknowledge is there's a certain amount of inconsistency within me. There's times that I can look back in my life and I can see where God has given me the faith to trust him, to step into things that I knew were big and to see his hand in it. And it's just been amazing. But yet, if I'm also honest, the far larger narrative is one of me, shall we say, a bit more doubtful and significantly more lacking in trust. And that manifests itself so often in worry. It manifests itself often often in worry and in self-pity. Oh, who am I that I could step into this? Who am I that I'm... uh, that I could lead in this way. Oh, I'm such a failure in this or that. Now, that can come off to many people as being humble, but if I were to really examine it and to really look at it, is there's nothing humble in it. It's really narcissistic self-pity. It's doubt. It's unbelief. It is putting the focus on myself and not on God. There's so many times as I look through that and I've seen God show up and work in ways that are incredible. And you would think that in all the ways that I've seen him work, that it would give me the faith that I need to never, ever doubt. But the truth is so often the provision that I've experienced on Monday is so easy to forget on Friday or the next Monday. When we started seminary, Uh, Back in 2004, we saw God show up just in incredible ways that have blessed us. Just in really almost, I would would even say supernatural ways that that really confirmed, hey, this is the path God has for us. But there were many times in years three and four, uh, two (laughs) of seminary where I thought, Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I just kidding myself here? Am I fooling myself here? You would think looking back, and certainly there there are places where God did give assurance that we went back on, but if I'm being honest, so great is my unbelief that I still question him. I still question the future. And that's a problem that most of us have. We often think, well, I could just trust God with my tomorrow more if I just experience more supernatural, more miraculous experiences of God's provision. But the truth is, no, we wouldn't. Our hearts struggle to believe. The good news, God in His grace is always there, always merciful, always kind, and always giving us that which we need. Always continuously, marvelously at work 
and the everyday ordinary. In this passage, we're going to be looking at a calling of King Saul. And he surrounds this episode. Number one, it's hilarious. It's just a funny episode. But we see it surrounded with God revealing his bigness, but yet we also see in Saul just comically still struggling with his own insecurities. And it's easy for us to look at those insecurities and say, come on, Saul, this is ridiculous. But if I look at my own life, I see those same insecurities manifest itself over and over again. You might say, well, that's just, you know, maybe you're just a person with low self-esteem, and certainly that'd be the case. But the truth is, we also see this in far more self-confident people as well. It just manifests itself in very different ways. Rather than trusting in God, that self-confident person trusts in themselves and say, I'm going to make tomorrow work through my competence, through my skill, through my ambition, through my willpower, through my go get them attitude. And the truth is, we still miss the most significant point to it all, and that is trusting in God. And so we pick up the narrative in 1 Samuel chapter 9. And keep in mind where we left off last week, the people had called for a king. They wanted a king to be like all the other nations. And so God told Samuel, give him one. And so we're going to see God's provision in this. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And he says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of, uh-huh, and the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome man. And there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. Now, right here, we automatically see there's this is quite the introduction, and there's a couple of things that we can see from this introduction. Number one, Paul, Paul, or excuse me, Saul comes from a very prominent family, and this is seen in multiple ways. Number one, when you see that his family had a lineage within there, that's a sense in which there's a certain amount of prestige. The fact that there that, that that was taking place within there. This indicates there was a prestige, but it's also said that his father was a person of great wealth. Not only that, but we see he is identified as a very handsome man and someone who is taller, and that's one of the things that's going to be emphasized. Now, that becomes pretty significant for a couple of reasons. Number one, from just a material, very superficial look, this is exactly the kind of person that you would say is, looks like the movie star. This is the kind of person that people from a very superficial way would gravitate towards. Hey, he's got money. He's got the looks. He's got the height. I bet he had good hair too. And so from a superficial level, as these people are looking for a superficial king to be like all the other nations, he kind of fits the bill. This is what the world seems to value. But there's something else that's interesting, the fact that he's so tall. One of the things that 
is typically mentioned, particularly in the Old Testament, is you don't hear Israelites ever being considered tall. It's always referred to as the other people, the people of Canaan are the tall. They're the giants. There's the, they're the people that are so much taller than them. And so in many ways, from a literary standpoint, what did the people say that they wanted? They wanted somebody like the nations, a king like the nations. Well, here you have someone who is, fits the bill of being like the nations. He's tall. This is someone the nations could respect within there. Verse 3. Now we're going to be introduced to Paul as a person. We see the superficial aspects, but what is he like as a person? Now, the donkey of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And so Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. And he passed into the hill country of Ephraim, and he passed through the land of uh-huh, and but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Salim, but they were not there. And when they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. And when they came to the land of Zuph, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. Now let us go there, perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And then Saul said to his servant, But if we, if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sack is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. And so they went to the city where the man of God was. Now, one of the first things that we can see, once again, how does it introduce Saul to us? And this becomes fairly important. One of the things that we see is he is fairly incompetent as a shepherd. He's not a competent shepherd, and that's nothing to just just sneeze at. What do we see? These donkeys are lost, and he's going about, and when you look at the pathway, he is all over the place. And he circles back around, and he's about in the place of Ramah, where where, um, Samuel is, which is ultimately about five miles from his hometown. And what is his first response in not being able to find these people? It's like, look, let's just give up. I'm sick of chasing after these donkeys. They're gone and let's just go. Now, one of the things that is important, this is, we we can sometimes miss this a little bit. This seems that we can see this a little bit as a missing on his initiative or perhaps on his ability to problem solve. But this is significant because how often does God actually compare the leaders to that of shepherds? And in fact, he often refers to himself as the good shepherd who leads his people, who doesn't lose his sheep. In fact, ultimately, and I'm going to come back to this, Jesus is the good shepherd did what? He left the 99 to find the one. 
Saul's ready to just give up. Compared to this to the king who be the one after God's own heart, how do we see David introduced? Also as a shepherd, but very, very different as a shepherd. One who fights wild beasts to protect his flock, to protect the lambs. One who doesn't leave his sheep. One who takes the business of shepherding quite serious. So we see both kings start off as shepherds, one rather incompetent, one far more competent. The other thing that we see is he's somewhat quick to, to, to give up. He's not very inventive. In fact, you have to have the servant says, no, 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 let's not give up yet. And you would think the servant who's the hired hand would be far more like, hey, look, okay, fine. That's no skin on my bag. It's not my, it's not my sheep. I get paid one way or the other, whether you find this donkey or not. But he's far more taking the initiative, having plans. But also notice he's the one who says first, hey, let's, let's actually seek after a God. Let's go, let's bring God into this equation. Let's go find this prophet who's in the same town. And this is amazing because Saul seems to be completely oblivious to Samuel, who he is, what he's doing, what does it mean to, to go see a prophet. And keep in mind, Samuel's town is only five miles from his own town. But yet it is the servant, not Saul, who has far more understanding of what does it mean to seek after a prophet. And even when it's suggested, what is Saul's first reaction? Oh, we can't do that. Rather than thinking of what can be done, he's constantly thinking of what all the things that could go wrong. The servant has to, in many ways, almost kind of talk him in to go seeing Samuel. Also, what does this, 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 uh, the servant say of this prophet? And this, follow this back. Everything that he says comes to pass. Follow that back. That will become significant. Verse 11. As they went up to the hill to the city, they met young women coming down to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? And the answer, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today at the high place. As soon as you enter into the city, you will find him before he goes up into the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Keep that in mind. Follow that away for a second. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. And so they went up to the city. As they were entering into the city, they saw Samuel come out towards them on his way up to the high place. Now keep in mind, Samuel is somewhat itinerant judge at this point. He's moving around. And so there's certainly God's blessing that Samuel happens to be in the town at that time. But what you see is they've, they've formed kind of a makeshift place of sacrifice in the town, keep in mind, the tabernacle would have been uh, destroyed at this point. And so the city itself has this place where they're going to offer up offerings. 
But what did the women say? They have to wait for Samuel. He must bless the sacrifice. So what do we see? Two things that have been said about Samuel. First off, everything he said comes to pass. He must bless the sacrifice. This becomes important foreshadowing because ultimately what we're going to see is where does Saul trip up? He doesn't wait for Samuel to bless the sacrifice later on as a king. The very first thing he has introduced to him is the role of the prophet of seeking God. And he wants to take that upon himself. And everything he says comes to pass. What did Sam? Saul tried to avoid and usurp and digress away from what Samuel will eventually says comes to pass. Verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because of their cry has come to me. Now, before we move on, well, actually, I'm sorry, let's go ahead and move on. Verse 17, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He is the one who shall restrain my people. And then Saul approached Samuel at the gate and said, <clears throat> Tell me, where is the house of the seer? <clears throat> Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me into the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and, you will, and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found, and for whom all end... For whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Now, several things that are interesting going on here. Number one, notice what God says. First of all, who is he revealed? He's pre-revealed that all this is taking place. So God, as you can see, he is behind every aspect of this. The lost donkeys, the fact that they're where they're going, where they're at, when um, when uh, Saul wants to return. He is behind all of this, leading to this point for this interaction between Saul and Samuel. But in addition to that, what God says, he says, you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. Now that's significant because notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say you're going to anoint him king. In fact, there's a, a big difference in the Hebrew here. This is not the word for king that the people had asked for in the previous chapter. Prince itself is, is, is an okay translation, but really it's the, trans, uh, what the translation I like better is ruler. Anoint him the ruler over my people. You see, one of the things that we've seen last week is that though the people were rejecting God as king and they wanted a king like the other people, here we see, despite that rejection, God is not rejecting his people. He still says, they are my people, and I'm going to give you a ruler. Not a king, a ruler. 
And this is going to be a person who is still going to be God's instrument to help them. Now, notice one of the things that, remember, that Samuel had said, and I believe, I told you, I think he went too far. He says, you're going to cry out and God's not going to hear you. Right off the bat, what do we see? God's care for his people. Despite their sin, despite their brokenness, God is still at work to save them. He still hears their cry for salvation. He says that here is the man who shall restrain. That's an interesting word. One of the things that isn't is not, once again, just like the people ask for a king to rule over them, He's giving them a ruler who will, and the word there could also be translated govern. But the thing is, it also says another translation, there's, and there's kind of a double entendre there. It does also mean restraint. What does that mean? I believe there's a double sense in which they will govern, but there's also a sense of judgment in that. We'll highlight that later on. Verse 9. Oh, um, the other thing, though, before, and it says, And whom is that is desirable in all of Israel? Well, what is the desire of Israel? To have a king. And so, right there, Samuel's saying, You're the desire of all of Israel. Saul doesn't like that very much. Verse 9. And Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? What is his response? Look, you've got the wrong guy. Why? Probably because Saul himself uses his, used his identity in improper places. Despite the fact that all that he has for him, coming from a wealthy family, his good looks, his height, None of it's ever going to be good enough because his identity isn't found in his relationship with God. Why does he say this of Benjamin? There is some significance in this. Because if we were to look back into the book of Judges, Benjamin is really, at the end of Judges, not in good place with the rest of Israel. In fact, what we see at the end of Judges is a civil war that takes place. There's this very kind of bizarre and very disturbing story of this Levite who is in this, in, in this place, in the city of Benjamin, and actually this place where this all takes place, where this all happens, is actually the very same city in which Saul is from. And in this place, this Levite has this concubine, and the people of this town, the people of Saul's town, come in and they do really bad things to her to the point that she dies. And so the Levite sends, cuts this concubine up into all kinds of different pieces and sends it throughout Israel. And all of Israel comes together and they fight and they almost completely wipe out the town, or I should say the, uh, the people of the tribe of Benjamin. It's very bizarre, very bis- disturbing story. And so here Saul says, wait a minute, don't you know I'm from Benjamin? Don't you know that my tribe and my client, my clan is from this very town that started this civil war? 
verse 15. Or, excuse me, verse... Uh, chap- we're going to move forward to chapter 10. Samuel invites Saul to have this dinner. He invites him, he gives him this choice piece of meat. And they're sending, he's sending him off. He sends off Saul. He sends off the, the, um, the servant. But he says, Saul, hold back. I'm going to give you a word from God. And we pick up in verse 10, chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head. And he kissed him and he said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. And when you depart from me this day, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at at, uh, Salaz. Yeah. And they shall say to you, the donkey that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkey and is anxious about you saying, what shall I do about my son? And then you shall go on from there farther and you shall come to the Aok of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a wine, a skin of wine. And they shall greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you accept from their hand. And after that, you shall come to that town where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp and tambourine, flute and lyre before them prophesying. And the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And when these signs meet you. Do what your hand finds you to do, for God is with you. And then go down before me into Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. And when, you have, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. And so God comes in, and this is quite impressive, all the things that he's doing. Things that you would think, surely after all of this, Samuel would truly trust in all that, or excuse me, Saul would truly trust in all that Samuel is telling him. Would trust and believe in this anointing that God has given. And we even see that God has changed his heart. Something that is true, is profound. But what we find, all this takes place, all this happens, and he comes back to his family. And his uncle finds out that he had come into contact with with, uh, Samuel, the prophet. And so in verse 15 of chapter 10, it says this, And then Saul's uncle said, Please, tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Hmm. Right there we see a little bit more of his character, his insecurities, his lack of trust. Verse 17. Now Samuel called the people to gather the Lord of Mizpah 
And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were opposing, oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all the calamities and all your distress. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near to the clans, and the clans of the Meturites, he was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. And so they acquired again to the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And they ran and they took him from there. And he stood among the people and he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. Now you got to admit, this is funny. I mean, here we have a man that is clearly called over and over again, this tall man. And what is he doing when his name is, is, is uh, called? He is hiding underneath something he is crouching down trying to hide behind these luggage that is just funny you can you just imagine what's going through samuel's mind at this point he's got to be looking it's like really this is the guy this is the guy who's going to replace me i mean look at him he's hiding behind the luggage And then they ran and they took him from there. When he stood up among the people, he was taller than any of, his, uh, any of the people from his shoulders upward. Now Samuel called the people together, the Lord of Mizpath. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have brought you out of the land of Egypt and I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today, oops, I've read something else there. Sorry about that. Uh, verse 24, and Samuel said to all the people, do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the peoples. And the people shouted, long live the king. I, perhaps this is just my satire, my comical mind. I just picture them bringing him in after hiding and Samuel saying, this is the man the Lord's chosen. Long live the king. Verse 25, and then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of kingship, and he wrote them in the book, and he laid them up before the Lord, and Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home, and Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched, but some worthless fellows, these are sons of Baai, same, same phrase that was used of Eli's sons, fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present that he held his peace. You know, as we look at this, we look at, and there's such comedy in this. We look at how can this person have experienced all these things seen by God, all these miraculous events, and yet still not trust God? still not trust what God is calling him to do. And the truth of the matter is, as much as I want to throw stones at him, 
as much as I want to say, you shouldn't even need all these signs. You should be able to just trust in the Lord. The fact of the matter is, I know in the own heart, I can still struggle. I can still struggle so much because so much within me is filled with shame. Is filled with this belief and this wonder of, do I actually matter? How can I actually believe that I matter in any way whatsoever? We struggle to find our self-worth. And the reason we struggle to find that self-worth is because we're constantly trying to find our identity apart from God, apart from trusting Him. And it's easy for us to, to hide this shame in this false sense of humility, in this, this sense of low self-esteem. Oh, well, I don't want to make, turn myself into something. And what's behind it isn't humility, but rather it is a self-focus. It is a lack of confidence in God. But behind it all, behind all this self-identity is ultimately shame. Ultimately, it is shame. And in our world where we're filled with so much brokenness, particularly brokenness in our relationships, coming from our very family, we find ourselves absolutely flooded in shame. Sometimes the shame comes from us, from our, our, our family histories, our backgrounds. Maybe it's shame because of the brokenness we experienced at home from our parents. Brokenness we experienced in our own marriage. Brokenness we, we feel in, in just the mistakes we've made. Regardless of what it is, it floods upon us this shame that overwhelms us. And we look at it, and no matter what we see, we can't believe that God's grace, God's mercy, God's identity can actually change and overwhelm that shame. We believe that there must be something that we do that can erase that shame, that can change that sense of identity. And we either give up because we think we'll never be able to do that thing which will change our identity, or we go at it. And it never actually changes us. It never actually fills. It just builds into this more complex, more needy sense of, uh, of self-worth. So even when perhaps, let's say, we think that once we get this job or this career or this family or this spouse, that that shame will be removed, that we'll have that which will make us feel like we've arrived it actually can make us even more miserable and even more insecure because deep down we think ourselves as this fraud. I got this job, but I am so out of my element. I'm so, or, or, or we, we look at it and we're like, yeah, this job was nice, but really I need, to, I, did, I, need to, I need a promotion. I need more because I set my, my sights too low. This doesn't actually remove the shame that is within me. We think we'll get our family, the spouse, that shame of loneliness, the same rejection that we feel from our broken families, we'll, all of a sudden we'll feel whole, but it doesn't. We still feel that same shame. We still feel that same, and we, and we fear losing it. And then that fear that comes at it, that, that shame, that, that causes this, this, this neurosis within us. 
that actually creates more harm to these relationships as we try to protect with just fervor. That's which we're scared to lose because we think that we have it by mistake, that we're just this fraud. Behind all of this is this insecurity because we're looking completely upon ourselves. And it doesn't matter when we think, well, if God just showed us this or that, that would completely ease our fears. But the truth is it doesn't. Not until we actually are firmly able to put our identity and our security and our trust in God's grace. And before that, all we'll do is just build barriers within there. And every word that we hear, every action that somebody else will take, will just seek to confirm that which we believe to be true. Every time we, we hear the sneer of the person, that coworker or that family member, this is the person that's going to save us. This is the new person that got promoted. This is the new husband. Even when it's not snarky or sarcastic because we believe it's so deep within us, we will analyze their, their words and their actions till it, it makes sense exactly what we actually truly believe about ourselves. What behind all of it is ultimately a, re, a great fear, a great deal of shame. And this is even more compounded when we deal with this reality that we, we the same thing just like Israel, and we hear ultimately that same condemnation that Samuel gave to the people, you have rejected God. You have rejected God. And we feel that shame over and over and over again. We can't hear how God is still moving to save, how God is still calling us his people. We can't hear the grace. We can't hear his provision. All we can hear is the condemnation because that's all that we believe. What is the answer? What is the solution to that? The solution isn't looking inward, but it's looking to God. The solution is trusting, not in ourselves. It's not, you know, so much of the self-help stuff is looking within, find the warrior within, find the leader within. But the answer that God gives us isn't to look for the leader within you, but to find the shepherd who loves you, to follow him and to follow him alone. This is why Saul never really seems to figure it out. He's constantly trying to look with him, and this is ultimately what undoes him. He's never ever able to really fully trust in God, and he is constantly looking to himself to lead the people to come from his own strength. Now, he has a great, and, and next week we'll look at that. He has, is, is, is his high moment in his high place. But ultimately, this is what undoes him. Now, when our identity becomes completely fixed in God, that enables us to acknowledge our own inadequacies, to acknowledge our own weakness, to be real about them, but to find our hope and our peace 
not by looking inward, but by trusting in God's love for us. And what's interesting within this is what God is doing here in the raising of Saul is he is bringing both judgment and salvation. We want to make it very black and white. It's both either or. Saul is completely an oracle of judgment, which he's saying, hey, you want a king like all the nations? Guess what? I'm giving you a king like all the nations, and this is just going to be terrible. And certainly there's a lot of bad that comes from it, but there's also a sense in which God is using it ultimately for his grace and for his glory. You see... God, despite all the sinfulness of the people, despite even the sinfulness of Saul, God is at work. Yes, there is going to be consequences for all this taking place. But God's goodness and control is at work to ultimately bring about salvation and good behind this. And that's why we can trust him. Because whereas we see all of Within us, we're always going to fail as shepherds. We're always going to fail in leaders. We're not going to measure up. But we see within God the good shepherd. Far beyond even David, because David's going to mess up. We have Jesus who is the true good shepherd. The one who became low, the glorious one who became lowly and despised. Rejected by men. Why? Because he was the shepherd who left the 99 to go after the one. The one who says, I'm going to give you identity as sons. Not through what you do, but through what I do. And so the peace and the freedom from the shame that we so crave, that we so want, where does that come from? It comes from trusting in the true shepherd, the trusting in his grace for you by looking to nothing else but his provision and what Christ has done for you by faith and following him. This is where your peace can come from. God in his grace and his mercy, he reveals his glory to us. But it's only when we trust in him that we'll actually be able to have the faith to trust him for tomorrow. So the question becomes, where are you looking to for your sense of confidence in tomorrow? You may not be called to be the king of anyone or a prince or a ruler of anything other than maybe your own dominion, your own house. But even that, let's be honest, even if it's just a simple home, you and your spouse or just you and whoever you come into contact with today, even that we feel woefully inadequate Where does that confidence for tomorrow come from? It comes from trusting in the good shepherd, in the true shepherd, not in ourselves. So my call to you is, won't you do that today? 
all of these insecurities, all these fears within you, take them to the Lord today. So if you would, bow your heads, close your eyes. Worship team, if you'd come. What are all of those, I, those fears that are overwhelming that you brought with you today? What did you bring in with you today? What is your lost donkey, so to speak? Where is your shame? Where is your insecurities? Will you bring the gospel into those insecurities? Will you confess them before the Lord? Lord, I feel this anxiety. I feel this worthlessness. I feel this shame. And I'm constantly trying to ease my anxieties and my fears and myself. God, I need to trust in Jesus that I am loved by him and that is enough. Give me the faith to do that today. Won't you do that? Father, give us the faith to trust in him in all that we do. Lead us now in, your, in, in this path of faith and this path of trust. We need you to open our eyes to your provision. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.